making the the 53 man roster of an NFL team is is really no easy feat uh, especially when it comes to the, the rookies uh, in the draft class. In 2010, the Chicago Bears made this documentary uh, that uh, followed the team's rookies from their arrival at training camp all the way until the, the preseason. And one of the videos showed part of Coach Levy Smith's orientation uh, with the 19 rookies. And he knew that there was some high tension in there because uh, of the 19 rookies that were there. Everybody knew that maybe seven of them would be on the final roster when it came time uh, for, the, uh, for the cuts. Knowing this and knowing their anxiety, uh, Lovey Smith um, challenged them with these words. He said, make us put you on the team. In other words, you need to practice and scrimmage so well that the coaches could not imagine cutting you from the team. Take the decision out of the coach's hands by your performance. Make them keep you on the roster. Well, whether we realize it or not, uh, many of us are walking through life with this mindset when it comes to our relationship with God. We feel that if we can just play the game of life, uh, if we can just be the best person that we can be, if we can avoid mistakes and we can em embrace our, our strengths and make this world a better place, then, then we should be able to make the cut onto God's team. The counterintuitive truth to that, however, um, would be uh, that God works on a completely different basis than NFL coaches. Uh, in in uh, football, you can outperform your other players, and you can outdo them in such a way that your performance is what gets you onto the team. When it comes to God, however, even if you are the most outstanding person on the field, you are still not good enough yet to get onto the team. And that can be kind of depressing. You can try and try and try hard to be a good person, but in the end, that doesn't get you in with God. But that is why Easter is such good news. The first Easter was, was a game changer for the entire world throughout humanity. When Jesus walked out of the tomb after being dead for three days, he was proving that it was his goodness and his sufficiency for us to be right with God. When he walked out of the grave, he was showing the world that his death was sufficient for our punishment for our sins. In walking out of the tomb, he was showing that sin and death no longer had dominion over him or anybody who trusts in him. In Christ and in Christ alone, we can have redemption. We can receive forgiveness. We can have the weight of guilt and shame lifted. In Christ and in Christ alone, we can be new and experience life as we were created to. In Christ and in Christ alone, we have friendship with God and eternal life. So in our brief time this morning, I want to take a few moments and, and have us reflect on uh, what it is and, uh, and what, how we can be certain that Jesus did, in fact, rise from the dead. 
And then we're going to look at how his resurrection affects us today, what it means for us right here and right now. So let's look at Mark chapter 16 and verses 1 through 8. This is what Mark writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Siloam, brought spices so that they could go and anoint him. Very early in the morning, on the first day of the week, they went to the tomb at sunrise. They were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone from the entrance of the tomb for us? And looking up, they noticed that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. When they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he told them. You're looking for Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He's not here. See the place where they put him? But go and tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you to Galilee. You will see him there just as he told you. They went out and ran from the tomb because, because trembling and astonishment overwhelmed them. And they said nothing to anyone since they were afraid. Well, today, if we want to see what Easter actually is and the historical reality of the cross and what it means for us, three things that we need to look at today. And the first is, is that we ought to have confidence in the resurrection of Jesus. You should have confidence in the resurrection of Jesus. You know, the resurrection of Jesus can be quite a conundrum for some folks, and it makes sense, right? I mean, think about it. Uh, you don't need to go down the street here. You don't need to go south on Union over to uh, and see Katie at the funeral home or go up north to see the fellows over at, uh, at uh, Dresser Methven and ask them if they'd ever seen a deceased individual get up and walk out of their, uh, their funeral home before. Because you already know the answer. None of them have ever experienced that. In fact, I'd be willing to bet that if you did go and ask them about their experience with people rising from the dead, they would probably look funny at you and wonder uh, if there was something wrong with you. Why? Because it doesn't happen. So it's understandable that the resurrection of Jesus is tough for some people to comprehend. And it was difficult for the ancients as well. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23, Paul tells us that both uh, the, the, uh, the uh, Romans and the Jews had an issue with it. He said that we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, and foolishness to the, Greek, uh, to the Gentiles. And so here, at the end of Mark's gospel, we have three really good reasons to have confidence in the resurrection. And the first is, is the testimony of those who were first to encounter the empty tomb. Look at verse 1 again. Then the Sabbath was over, and Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Siloam, brought spices so that they could go and anoint him. Now what we're going to see throughout all of these eight verses is that the narrative is dominated by what these women experienced. And traditional Jews, they did not embalm the dead like, like we do. Uh, rather, they would anoint the body with spices and perfumes, and, and then they'd wrap the body in linen uh, before putting uh, the body in a tomb. These were not meant to preserve the body at all, but rather it is to uh, give honor and dignity to the dead by covering up the smell of, of decay. 
And in Mark's account here, it, it doesn't appear that Jesus was anointed with spices before Joseph of Arimathea wrapped him up and put him in the tomb. There simply wasn't time. Uh, the sun was going down. The Sabbath was starting very, very quickly. So now that the Sabbath is over, these women were going to go and care for Jesus by anointing him with these spices. And verse 2 notes that very early in the morning now, on the first day of the week, they went to the tomb at sunrise. There's two reasons why they went very early in the morning to visit. The first is, is that they're on a time crunch. There's only so much longer that they can wait before they go in there and anoint the body with spices in order to, uh, to help the body before uh, it's unhealthy for them to go in there. And the second and more important reason is that going just before dawn uh, is concealing their identity and concealing what they're doing. Even though this is a culturally normative thing to, uh, to help the body smell better, they are still going to uh, anoint public enemy number one from both the Jews and the Romans. And it's important to, uh, to take note here that uh, they, by showing allegiance, could get into a lot of trouble here. And also another thing it's important to note here is that uh, the disciples, the men who hung out with Jesus, are still hiding. They're still uh, being, uh, being cowards, hiding up in an upper room, waiting for this to blow over. And so, while they are shown to be weak, these women are shown to be quite strong. But not physically, though. Because look at verse 3. They were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone from the entrance of the tomb for us? Now, in Israel, most, uh, they didn't have graveyards like we do. They had these, these tombs or mausoleums or, or uh, whatever you would want to, uh, to call them. Uh, they were generally covered by a large stone. These stones were meant to prevent body snatchers from coming in and stealing the body or thieves to come in and take anything that was there uh, with the, the body. And also that stone would also speed up the decomposition process so that the tomb could be used by another family member if one were to die in the next few months. And because Jesus was buried in a rich man's tomb, the stone would have been exceptionally large and very difficult to roll this uh, stone away. And so these women are kind of left to themselves to figure out how in the world are we going to open this tomb. But to their surprise, however, in verse 4, it tells us that the stone had already been rolled away. Now this would raise a huge alarm, wouldn't it? Why in the world is this grave open? Is somebody already anointing him? Did, did somebody desecrate his body? Did somebody steal his body? And remember that these women are living in a very patriarchal society. And they are having great risk if they were to go into that tomb and run into somebody that wants to, to do danger to them. The, the most practical and, and protective thing that they could have done is seen that it was open and said, I got to get out of here. I got to go get some of these disciples to go with me and see what's going on here. But they didn't do that. I mean, if someone was bold enough to go in and steal or desecrate a body, they'd have no problem dealing with these, these Jewish women here. 
And all of that up to this point is extremely critical when we think about the reliability of this historical account. How do you think Mark got this information? Probably from these women. Now, to us, that wouldn't be a big deal, but in the first century, the testimony of a woman wasn't even admissible in court. So if you were going to write a, a, a biography about somebody in the first century, why in the world would you use the type of person whose testimony would not even be admissible at that time? So the fact that these are uh, a, a woman's testimony shows us that this is different and what really happened. And here's the report when they got to the tomb. Verse 5 says that when they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Now, based on the, the evidence that we have uh, throughout Scripture, uh, this young man is not just some college kid that's waiting for a toga party. Uh, this man is nothing other than an angelic being. And in, in Scripture, we can see that this is uh, an angelic being because of their reaction. When someone encounters an angel in Scripture, they are mortified because they are very, very scary looking. Angels in the Bible are not flying, fat little babies with wings. They are warriors that if you encountered one, you would probably be frozen in fear as well. And so, in verse 6, the angel says, whoa, 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 don't be alarmed. Don't be alarmed. You're looking for Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they put him. And so now, based on the testimony of these women, the, the presence of the angel announcing the resurrection is good evidence for this resurrection. And isn't it interesting that the book ends of Jesus' life has to do with angels announcing to people who are lowly and disenfranchised in society. At his birth, the angels came and sang to shepherds. And at his death, angel, uh, angels, other accounts say angels, were announcing his resurrection and when we look at the emptiness of the tomb, we have to be careful that we think that this alone proves the resurrection. It really doesn't. He could have been stolen. The angel could have just been a person that uh, is lying. That's why the accounts of Jesus' appearances are so crucial. It's not the empty tomb that proves the resurrection, but the resurrection makes the empty tomb meaningful. And when we put all this together now, there's a strong case that this resurrection is indeed true. But whether or not we believe it to be true is only a prerequisite. Throughout the entire gospel of, of Mark, Mark has labored to warn us against uh, seeing signs and wonders and miracles, even a visit from an angel, that those do not produce faith. But the only thing that produces faith is the proclamation and the hearing of the gospel that Jesus lived, died, and was raised for us. So it's not what they saw or what they experienced that changed these women. 
It is the pronouncement or the announcement of the angel that Jesus isn't here anymore. He has been raised. He is alive and well. That is the gospel, friends. You and I are, are sinners. We deserve death. Jesus was sinless. He deserved nothing but the crown of, of heaven, yet he died in our place. And in his resurrection, he proved his victory, and now he invites us to trust in him, to follow him, and receive the benefits of that. So then, what does that mean for us in our practical, everyday, mundane lives? Two brief things. The first is, is that we ought to internalize the scope of the resurrection. We should internalize how far-reaching this resurrection gospel is. That's our second point. Verse 7 helps us to understand who the resurrection is for. We've already seen that the resurrection is for the disenfranchised. It was for these women who um, were, yeah, sorry, I changed uh, the, 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 the title of the slide, by the way, that we ought to internalize the scope of the gospel. Things change when you think about them after you've uh, had some time. But now in verse 7, uh, we find out more. The angel commands these women. Uh, he says, go and tell the disciples and Peter that he's going ahead of you to Galilee. You will see him there just as he told you. So what does that tell us? Uh, uh, first, we have to understand why it is that Peter and the disciples are not there and the women are. Jesus and the disciples have been hanging out together for three years. The disciples witnessed and experienced some of the craziest things that human eyes have ever laid, that, that human eyes have ever seen. They saw Jesus heal the sick. They saw him restore sight to the blind. They saw him cast out demons. They saw him turn water into wine. They saw him walk on water. Even raise a man from the dead. They had heard words uttered out of his mouth that they had never heard before. They were present for the Sermon on the Mount. They saw his sharp rebukes against the religious elite of the day. They were so convinced that this is the man that Israel had been looking forward to since the fall of Adam and Eve that just four days ago they pledged that they would not only die with, but for Jesus. Yet when push came to shove and the going got tough and the authorities came with the long arm of the law, they all bailed. They deserted him and went into hiding. And in fact, Peter, uh, who was sort of the spokesperson and leader of the disciples, he was the most adamant that if anything happens to you, I'm going to make sure it doesn't happen. It's going to happen to me before it happens to you. He distanced himself and denied Jesus three times. So the disciples are not there because they are disenchanted and scared cowards. Now put yourself in the resurrected Lord's shoes for just a moment. If you had labored for three years to convince your friends and followers that you would die and that you would be raised from the dead, 
and you gave them a bunch of signs, you gave them a bunch of miracles to show that you probably actually would indeed be able to do it, and in the middle of the process, they actually ditch you before you died. What would you say when you came back and you met with them? Maybe you're, <coughs> maybe you're like, uh, I, I probably would be, unfortunately. Take this opportunity to dress them down. What's wrong with you? I told you I would do this. Didn't I say all these things would happen? You ditched me before I died, which, by the way, needs to happen before someone's resurrected from the dead. And you left. What is wrong with you? Why am I even putting up with you? But Jesus doesn't... Um, there's nothing like that. And having the angel instruct the women to go and tell his disciples and Peter that he's going ahead of you to Galilee, you'll see him there just as he told you. He's giving a word of encouragement to the disciples, and he's giving an encouraging word to you and to me. The command here to go and uh, tell the disciples that Jesus is not only uh, alive, but is waiting for them, is saying that he's ready to start the next chapter of their adventure together. And it's communicating that the disciples' cowardice is not the end of the story in their lives. This is a word of grace as well, that forgiveness is offered through his death and through his resurrection. If the word of grace here is extended to a traitor who denied him three times and a group of men who professed their loyalty to him but died at the critical hour, how much more is there a word of grace for people like you and like me? If Jesus can forgive them and include them in his worldwide plan, then how much more for you and for me who have failed him time and time again? The scope of and the extent of the resurrection is for anyone who recognizes their sin, regardless of how dark and messed up or far off they are, and to repent, it means to turn from their sin and to turn to Jesus. See, friends, the resurrection is for you, and it's for me, and it's for the entire world, for everyone to turn from sin and find life in Christ. Finally, uh, number three, we need to follow Jesus despite our hesitations. Follow Jesus despite our hesitations. So the women found the empty tomb. They met an angelic uh, being who commanded them to go and to tell the disciples, go and tell, go and tell Peter that uh, Jesus has been raised. And now Mark adds sort of an interesting and, and curious detail here that is a very odd way to, to end a gospel. In verse 8, he records their response. And it isn't anything like you would actually think it would be. It says, they went out from the tomb because trembling and astonishment overwhelmed them. And they said nothing to anyone since they were afraid. How'd you like that to be your uh, remembrance of your life in the eternal word of God? Why did they run? Was it because they were so excited to tell the world what they saw? 
Mark is very clear here that they, uh, that they ran. That their flight, fight, or freeze response is to take flight. They went out and, and they ran. And running was not a proper thing for a Jewish woman to do. Nor was it a proper thing for a Jewish adult male to do as well. And the word that Mark uses for trembling is not a positive one. It is uh, to shake out of fear, or it is to, to tremble, or to quake. And this is mixed with the idea of, of astonishment and, and almost disbelief. This is so intense that uh, the, the text tells us that these women were, uh, uh, that these women didn't say anything to anyone. That doesn't mean that they didn't go and tell Peter and all the disciples about this stuff. It just means that they were so afraid that they ignored anyone on the road. They didn't even have a discussion amongst themselves. They, need, they knew where they needed to go. Forget everyone else. We are going straight where we need to be. These women ran. They ran without exclamations, without questions, without conversations. They just ran but it's not as if they were running aimlessly. They were, in fact, running intentionally, albeit fearfully. This ought to teach us something about faith. Faith is not always unwavering, strong, and a confident feeling. Faith is sometimes coupled with fear, anxiety, and doubt. And we need to remember that the resurrection does not magically dispel fear and cowardice. But the gospel of the resurrection does change and transform broken and fearful and fallible people into faithful people, regardless of their fear. Faith is not the lack of those things, but acting in courageous faith despite them. It is not standing on the sidelines and watching the game. It's getting in the huddle and then getting on the line. You know, on Easter we were given amazing news. Christ has risen from the dead. And because he has, we don't have to make God put us on the team. We don't have to put up a performance to, to catch his eye. We don't have to outdo our peers Instead, we get on the roster because of the work of one person. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. The one who knew no sin, who became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. In his death, he canceled our debt and our, uh, our sin, our debt of sin and shame. In his resurrection, he gave us life and he gave us life abundantly. And maybe it's been a while since you've considered the claims of Christianity. That we worship and serve a God who became flesh, literally died, and literally rose from the dead, and still lives today. And is governing the affairs of, of the church and mankind. It is not too late to worship and follow him. Today may be Jesus' resurrection day. But this can also be your resurrection day too. The day when our, our dead spirits and souls that are so locked into sin can be unlocked and unleashed into the grace of Christ. 
Today can be your resurrection day too. Today you can find new life in him. Friends, trust in this resurrected king who died, who was raised, and who now lives victorious for you and for me. Let's pray together.